Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRose Show. I am pleased to bring to you a returning guest to the show. We are joined today by Hugh Hendry. He is the CIO of Acid Capitalism and the host of the Acid Capitalist podcast. Hugh is a former hedge fund manager. He ran Eclectica Asset Management, a global macro hedge fund between 2002 and 2017. And this was a hedge fund that was uncorrelated to pretty much everything in the financial universe. In this episode, we revisit Hugh's thesis on what he's deemed the fourth Great Depression that we're currently already in. We also talked about the Federal Reserve and policymakers and some of the mistakes that have been made. We talk about asset allocation in this environment. And we also talk about how Hugh sees another recession coming, one that could be of a similar magnitude to what we saw back in 2008. I really enjoyed having Hugh back on the show. I took a ton of notes. He always gets me thinking, and I know that you all enjoy hearing from him too. So I hope you all enjoy this episode with Hugh Hendry. Hugh Hendry, CIO of Acid Capitalism and the founder of Eclectica Asset Management, which was a global macro hedge fund that you ran from 2002 until 2017 that was pretty much uncorrelated to basically everything in the financial universe. It is so great to welcome you back on the show. Great to see you again. And Hugh, I got to say, you were a real hit last time. Oh, Julia, I, you know, I think we've got chemistry. Let's, let's make sweet music. I think we do too, because I felt like, uh, I don't know, maybe last interview got a little vulnerable at times, but I really liked that. Um, and I didn't expect that uh, per se, but I really enjoyed the conversation and just learning more about you, things that I didn't know. And it was also our first time uh, talking at the time. So um, let's kick things off this time with uh, the markets and the economy. We'll go ahead and start there with the big picture. What is kind of your assessment of the macro picture today and also markets? Um, I mean, it's a, it, the, the business of prognostication is a dismal and a miserable endeavor. And metaphorically, I keep running into dead bodies. You know, my life is, that's why I need to live in beautiful sunny climates here in St. Bart's because my imagination is dark. It's not always dark. Presently, presently it's as dark as it was in 2007. I see profound catastrophic um, uh, policy decision, decision-making by the, the authorities. Um, there was an incredible speech uh, by the one of the departing members of the interest rate setting committee of the Bank of England. And, and she spoke at the weekend and she said, hey, listen, if we can actually assimilate a model which has, you know, like artificial intelligence, it's smarter than we are. Okay. And so the, the model in real time knows that in the midst of, of the pandemic, that there's, there's an antibody and it works. And that within six to nine months, where the economy is going to be, you know, grasping, um, escape speed velocity, demand's going to be returning, and the model knows that Russia's going to invade Ukraine, and the model knows, and indeed everyone should know that the UK, among amongst all the the European sovereign uh, nations, is the most dependent on natural gas as the energy stock for you know for heating and for power. Okay. And the model knows that energy prices are going to go ballistic. Okay. So with all of that knowledge, the MPC, because the big complaint about the Fed and the other central banks is that they were too early in hiking rates. Okay. So, but the model would never have made that mistake. And so the first quarter of 2022, uh, UK rates would have been jacked up to 7%. Okay. I mean, they're presently five. Uh, we'd they'd have gone early with with all of that foresight. We would have the 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 model would have automatically uh, hiked to seven. Okay, and what is so revealing is that would not that would not have changed the profile of inflation. We'd have ended up with the same headline inflation figures, these very high figures. Okay, the only difference is that we would now be looking towards the end of this year with the UK economy slipping into like being a, a recession of three to, to 5% contraction in the economy. Yeah. But you would not have changed 
the profile of inflation. It was a shock that monetary policy had no answer. It was a transitory shock that monetary policy has no answer to. Um, in the UK, um, and why the 2007 metaphor seems so appropriate, is 80% of the mortgage stock is on fixed rate. And 15 years ago, a fixed rate was called a teaser, right? So everyone had a mortgage and, and they spent large um, with rates at 2%. Yeah. And and every quarter now, 25% of that stock is, is resetting into the world of six, seven percent. I am I am I'm so fearful of what lies ahead. Fearful. What do you let's elaborate? I want to hear more on that because when you say you're fearful, my ears automatically prick up. I want to hear more. Well, I mean, it's not just me that's that's fearful because if we look at the US regional bank index. What is it? The KRE or KRX? Yeah. I think it is. Yeah, something like that. Um, K it's either yeah, I think it's KRE. W. Or, I don't know. Uh, I'll look it up. But D I think you. Yeah, but anyway, it's it's lost two thirds of its value from the high, um, and it's not rallying. You know when you know the the perils of short selling is that you get these vicious counter trend rallies, um, because everyone knows that the banks are, are in, in a bad situation. You know we've we've had we've had three. Or casualties already, um, and it's but typically because I went through two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, and and believe me, people, we live in a we live in a world of absurdity. Strange, crazy things always happen. I remind the younger folk that Wells Fargo, it's a big U.S. bank, um, Wells Fargo made an an, an all time high two weeks before. The bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers, right? So when people tell me, "Oh, look at the market," you know, why can you be so pessimistic? Because I lived through the insanity of two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. So, um, yeah, we've we've got the dream, we've got the hope. Uh, I have it. I've got I've got the the great optimistic juice for what AI might do. But between then and now. I think we're looking at an almighty economic global contraction. I think it's already here in Europe. I think it's being felt already in China uh, in the last shoot. And I think it's definitely being felt by all the small entrepreneurs that reach out to me from America. Um, and I think the official data, which is always revised, when it's revised in nine or 18 months time, I think it will show that the, that the US was already in um, recession as we speak. Yeah. Um, I want to hear. Okay. Um, and by the way, I went and looked up um, earlier in the conversation, the Bank of England's um, official you're mentioning, and I'm probably going to butcher her last name, but just to put it out there, um, Silvana Tenreiro. Is that right? Yeah, that's the one. That's the okay. lady. And, and you know, and, and for anyone that, that guffaws and says, oh, you know, she was born in Argentina, you know, and that means she's seen the ravages of bad policy and she educated herself and dedicated herself to, you know, the public cause to try and make sure that those policy errors would not be perpetuated. She finds herself teaching at the London School of Economics. Got it. Just wanted to put it um, on the docket since you did mention um, earlier, but delving more into this, um, when folks say, Hugh, how can you be so pessimistic? Like, I guess when you look at the markets and this is where it's a little perplexing to me. Um, I sit here in the U.S. and I've brought this up with guests too. Um, where do you, why is there such a disconnect between the markets and the economy with so many folks expecting a recession? Why do you think that is? Okay, well, my, my point is who cares? Okay, I, I, sorry, that's not to deflect your question, but it, it's like, um, be, a, be a lover, not a hater, right? So I, I sound like I'm a hater, like I'm, I'm hating stocks. I don't, you know, I organize my affairs and I'd encourage people to, to follow, not my lead, but you know, to, to give it consideration. So I, th I think in terms of quadratic expressions or, or like investing in, in four global macro spaces, if you will. And so I'm, and I'm always represented. So today I'd have, I would have equities and, and I would have, um, you have to own pulsating strong uptrends. Okay, so you have to own, you know, Meta. Uh, you have to own, you know, uh, Alphabet. You have to own Microsoft. You have to own uh, 
Apple, NVIDIA, Applied Micro Devices. I can no issue with that. But I've only got 20% of my fund, of my fund, I don't have a fund, my imaginary wealth, if you will, dedicated to equities. Not a lot, 20%, okay? But I'm there, okay? And um, they're going up and I'm cool, okay? If we go to the next quadrant, that would be um, uh, riskless government securities, US treasuries. Now, I really like them. I've got a big prejudice, which is clearly, I think, you know, metaphorically, I'm seeing dead bodies. Um, and, and from price action, we've eliminated the, the upside of the last 15 years out of the price of long duration US government securities. And in my business, we call that like a three standard deviation event. You know, so the, if, if we draw the bell curve, um, the, um, like the number of observations where we see such a move are rare. And, and I believe that when we discuss like global assets, not stocks, but global assets, I think you see mean reversion. And the last time I'd seen a very similar happenstance was the S&P in March of 2009. You know, it had fallen 65%. It was three going on four standard deviations below trend, and it was a buy. And, but there were, there were a million reasons telling you you shouldn't buy equities, but you should have. Okay, so I, I have an allocation to, let's keep it, you know, to the retail folk, to the, the ETF, the TLT, the tilts, you know, which is 17 year plus uh, uh, maturity. Um, but it's, my, my position there is in options. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I've, I've got some funky options just now because the treasuries are not, I buy things that are going up. You know, I might look like a, a bum, a hobo from the streets, but I, I live in a billionaire paradise because I respect the laws of the markets. I buy things going up and, and I try to, I, I don't own things which are going down. Now, the treasuries are going sideways. And I would, I take some um, confidence from that because if you imagine for the last eight months, all of the hysteria about inflation and higher rates, and prices have stabilized. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I've, I've got a, a significant option position. And, and that's a, asymmetric. If I lose it, I lose it. All right. Okay. And then if we come into the world in this very large uh, quadrant, which is alternatives. So that would be the domain of gold. I was going to say, I was talking about silver the other day on Twitter, but silver is tiny. But it would be, it would be Bitcoin. It would be a treasury index protected securities. It would be private equity. It would be commercial property. But it could be oil. So you're talking a $100 trillion asset bucket. And there, um, I, I would have like 20% again of, of my portfolio in the dreaded Bitcoin. Um, really? Yeah, oh, yeah. wait, is this a newer uh, development? Um, can't remember on the last time. I, I'm sure Bitcoin came up, but I don't know if you were allocated to Bitcoin last time I talked to you. No, I don't. Pro probably not. Well, first of all, remember Bitcoin was sliding. It was on the slide. That's so true. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, and you know, we went spot sixty nine thousand to like fifteen thousand. So we had a bear market. And I'm saying to you, in in broad asset classes, I like mean reversion. Okay. So that draws my attention. I'm like a, a flea drawn to the light at night. Um, but more significantly, it's just. The minuscule size of the Bitcoin market. I think it's it's gonna last, it's going to endure, it's gonna be with us in the future. Um, but at today's prevailing price, it's the total market cap. If we imagine all of those uh coins are are mined and minted or whatever, um, it's presently trading around half a trillion dollars, 0 0.5. Okay. Well, in comparison, gold is 13 trillion dollars. And if gold tripled, it would be greater than the size of all U.S. equities. Maybe that happens, but that feels like like you'd have to be Hercules to kind of push that kind of movement. Whereas if Bitcoin tripled or quadrupled, it would be one and a half or two trillion dollars. It would be the size of of Meta. So it's not a big ask. And I like things that have convexity. So I like things that have fallen a lot. Is stop falling. And it has convexity. And so I have a Bitcoin. Um, and then finally, because all, all I've done is I put 20% into equities, 
Um, I bought options on treasuries. I got 20% in Bitcoin, which is to say I got a ton of cash. And I'm sitting in, you know, dollar, 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 dollar bill. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in dollar cash. And I get 5%. Yeah. So you're sitting um, with a bunch of cash too. And kind of going back to what you were saying earlier about this kind of almighty um, economic global contraction said it's already happening in Europe. It's happening in China. And as you mentioned, you're hearing from small businesses, entrepreneurs here in the U.S., um, what they're feeling that hasn't been reflected in the official data. Um, so can we hear more on the thesis there? Because I imagine, too, there's going to eventually be an opportunity or a buying opportunity um, once we see this kind of contraction. Can we explore that thesis a bit more? Well, for sure. So like, you know, the, the, the cash is is rewarding, 5% rates. Um, and I'm, I'm, and I'm waiting, to your point, I'm waiting. You know, if, if the S&P were to fall 30, 35% from its all-time highs, I'd be a buyer. And I'd have the facility to buy. Yeah, I'd have the cash. If the, the TLTs, if they start to trend positively, and so if you look at a chart of TLT, um, it's presently around 101, 102. If it was to, to break 110, again, I would deploy my cash and, and I would buy lots more like Delta, buy a lot of, lot of government bonds. Now, in terms of the, the here and now, um, you know, every macro manager sees the same data um, you know, and is ghastly. Uh, and we, we look at ISM, we look at all of the indicators uh, which are going on both in the manufacturing and service uh, uh, sectors, and, and they're all typically trading below below 50. You know, people, are, people are concerned. And then the other thing is there is a remarkably high correlation between producer prices and, and ultimately consumer prices. I mean, so high, really high, okay? And if you put it, if you if you look at where producer prices have trended to, um, they've trended to like well below two percent. I mean, they're they're almost into deflation. Um, to my mind, uh, uh, CPI, even the sticky consumer price, is going to follow suit. And so, you know, we we get a, an inflation print. I think next week. Um, and I I think it's going to show that already the Fed is at two percentage points real rates and that's just a level which punishes um private endeavor in the in the united states and globally to put it another way you know with the fed at five and a quarter with debt being four times gdp we're sitting at 20 percent interest rates you know, we're, we're at the same levels that paul volcker got to and you don't stay there long so you know that's that's kind of my that's the mental state of my affairs currently. I want to hear more on that too, like punishing um, more of like the private investment, if you will. I think that's what you said. You're talking about like, um, I just want to hear more on that. Do you think it, it, it hurts like entrepreneurship? I just want to hear more. Yeah. Um, the, so it's my determination that we have been in a depression since 2008. Um, and it's actually been a depression, which, although it doesn't receive attention, it has been more devastating on ordinary folk than the depression of the 1930s. If you were to take um, a per capita GDP, which is to say the average income of the average Joe in America, and, and index it to 100 uh, beginning in March of 2009, let's say, with the advent of quantitative easing, um, and you were to compare the progress of that index with a similar index from 1930, when we had the bankruptcy of the US banking system, um, and you go 15 years forward, one, one series is, is now at 180, and that's the 1930s, which is to say per capita GDP has expanded from 100 to 180. The corresponding contemporary series has gone from 100 to 118, right? Um, 
it's it's profound profoundly tough on ordinary families it's the reason we've got an opiate crisis it's the reason the politics of america and globally are up in the air and people are really feeling it and, and they're losing hope um so but it's been held together because you know the u.s reaction to the pandemic uh, differed from the from the european system the european system kind of paid money for people to to work at home or stay at home to subsidize that um and the us um did did some of that but also sent the stimmy checks and and so we had a huge boost in in consumption and so if you were to look at it um an economic chart of uh, consumption versus the the trend prior to uh, the, the trend prior to the pandemic the us has recovered to trend Europe is way below trend and is actually beginning to to falter and fall again, which to my mind is no surprise why you know the French are up in arms and at the barricades and, and all of that. But the, the bad news is that the the the, the stimmy checks and the, the surplus balances from that, there was a study by the San Francisco Fed and they reckon that that pretty much is depleted by the end of the year. So, you know, um I think we're walking on eggshells presently. I don't think the Fed's going to. I, I don't think the Fed's going to raise rates again. I think they're going to promise. They're going to talk tough. I don't think they will. Um, See, I hope um, they don't. Yeah, walking on eggshells, and it almost sounds like this um, notion of depression. You, we brought this up the last time. You pointed out that we are already in um, what you you coined um, the fourth Great Depression. Um, in two hundred years, yeah. Yeah. Do you think is it? Is it kind of a silent depression, and then it like we're starting to see that it's no longer silent? Like what? What do you? I mean, how would you kind of characterize it? Yeah. Well, I mean, if the, if this recession is as painful as I fear it might prove to be, then I think the the elites will be unable to to contain that dialogue. But um, I, I'm just thinking. I don't think I answered your question very very well last time because it's the primacy of the, the banking sector. Um. um we talked about the private sector and entrepreneurs and, and like creating things, having visions and pushing the, the economy forward. Um, and that needs um, risk-taking um, uh, lending institutions. Um, and the banking sector, the, you know, the banking sector knows it's in trouble. You know, the, um, this thing, this thing called an iPhone, has fundamentally disrupt, disrupted banking. Um, banking for a hundred years or so worked on the premise that no one really takes money out of the bank. Like a bank run might be 5% of deposits get, get yanked. Um, now we know that it, it all goes in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And so banks are, are looking at, them, at, at their funding they're looking at their asset liability and they're thinking, this is not what we signed up for. And so they're feeling very fearful. And then secondly, um, uh, bad things happen when there is uh, when a, a really well-formed argument goes wrong. Okay, so you know, in 2007, 2008, there was a, a really smart argument that if you collected a residential mortgage mortgages in one portfolio, and they were regionally diversified, that there was almost no risk of default. Yeah. Um, and that was the mortgage-backed securities. Um, the only problem was, I mean, we can't even call it black swan. You know, we had a hundred years of data, and then we got one data point, and, and nationwide house prices started to fall. Um, and, and that blew up the premise. And suddenly securities. People, people held $5 trillion of riskless securities. And they went, holy, th- this is really risky. And they went to sell it. And you know we had a lot of bankruptcies. The same thing is happening today in that the banking sector was encouraged to own a lot of uh, government securities in the hold to maturity bucket. And the, and the promise was you never have to uh, recognize any losses on these portfolios, you can hold them to maturity. But you know, the demise of S- Silicon Valley et al. was the phone disrupting and making the deposits capable of leaving so rapidly. 
meant that the unthinkable happened. You know, Silicon Valley disappeared because it had $17 billion of losses on its treasuries, and that wiped out its equity book. Bank of America. Only last week, we discovered that Bank of America has a $100 billion loss on its treasuries. Now, it has $287 billion of shareholder funds. But, you know, that's to say over a third, like 40% of its shareholder funds has gone up in smoke unless they can retain deposits. So now what's happening is the banking sector, it doesn't want to make loans. And now it's having to pay more and more. It's having to match the Fed in terms of higher and higher interest rates. And its profitability is disappearing. And so an economy that has um, a banking sector, which is fearful, a banking sector, which has um, a lot of um, portfolios marked at the wrong level, and and a banking sector where profitability is on the slide, is typically an economy which is about to enter a recession. A big recession. Big recession, yeah. Um, and just going back to the banks too, you mentioned like Silicon Valley Bank. And then um, I feel like, gosh, I feel like the conversation kind of died down because um, it was like everybody was talking about it. Um, maybe they still are. But yeah, like the banks, when you look at the balance sheets and specifically looking on that mark-to-market basis, like... Um, they don't they they don't look really good. They look terrible. Um do you think that that do you think we'll see a resumption in that conversation? Or you know, we're certainly not out of we're we're not out of the woods yet on the banking crisis, are we? No, no, we certainly aren't. And and again, if we keep playing this violin of talking about 2008, remember Bear Stearns went bankrupt in February of that year. Um countrywide and Wachovia. And a few others disappeared in the summer. And yet in September, Wells Fargo made an all-time high. It's just crazy. So, um, and another data point is, you know, that the Federal Reserve had their stress test of the, the major systemically important banks. And they're like, these guys are solid. They're, they're really solid. And the only problem with that is using the exact same metrics for Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse was really, really solid, except it went, doof. Mm-hmm. okay, so what are they measuring? You know, the, all the authorities can do is talk, you know, they're like, they're traffic cops, there's been an accident on the, on the freeway, and they're like, and people are slowing down and looking, and the traffic cops are like, keep moving, we've got this, keep moving, okay, but, um, I, you know, keep alert, keep alert, but... yeah. Well, going back to policymakers too, because at the top of the conversation, you're just talking about like we've seen some profound, catastrophic policy making. You were also mentioning the Fed that you expect that they will stop hiking. Can we hear more of your thoughts on the Federal Reserve? Yeah, I mean, in some respects, the Federal Reserve is a is a bit player um, playing it playing at the edges. Um, a long time ago. Uh, in the 1970s, really, uh, the offshore uh, banking system that's called the euro-dollar system, really over, over what I want to say, bit, bit, the, the amount of dollars being created offshore, I call them non-sovereign dollar creation, um, began to exceed the number of dollars being created by United States banks making loans to, to US residents. Um, and the Federal Reserve doesn't measure it and, and doesn't seek to regulate it. Um, and, and that system has turned very conservative and very fearful because it's, you know, it's, it's a worldwide system and it, it's, its job is to smell, smell out trouble ahead. You know, they, they make loans every 24 hours and they're beginning to, to change the collateral and become more conservative. Um, so that's the first thing. Um, secondly, um, secondly, in terms of being a bit player, the, the travails of the U.S. economy are largely a function of the amount of debt that we're carrying. You know, I'm approximating and saying total debt is four times GDP. It's probably like 3.6 or something of that nature. Um, in the 1970s, it was one times. Um, now, why is it so high? It's so high because the va- if you want to understand how GDP grows, 
GDP is a function of population growth, productivity growth, and debt growth. Okay, so population growth, nada. Um, product, productivity is, is perplexing because again, with the iPhone and AI, and you know, we're we're getting the tools which are making us smarter and mobile, and that should be productive. But, but productivity is really determined by private sector investment. You know, uh, let me give you an example. When when oil prices were too high, you know, we, we hit 150 bucks in the summer of 2008. It encouraged a huge amount of private sector investment to contain the cost price pressure from, from high energy. And that gave us, in some respects, the green revolution, green hydrogen, solar panels, you know, Elon, etc. And and that's productivity. Um, we're not getting that investment because the world just now, the, the global trade system is malfunctioning. Um, and and what's happening is China has a China and you know many other countries, Brazil, Germany, et al. Um, they have a glut of manufacturing capacity. They've got too much capacity. And and the US um Oh, just by default, not by choice, because it's an open, democratic, um, contract-respecting nation, is open. And so it allows the savings to be drawn down by consuming the deficit country's problems. And ordinarily, China's currency would appreciate, its citizens would become richer vis-a-vis us, and they'd want to buy goods and services made in America. And so the discrepancies would balance out and it would be kind of it'd be kind of cool. Instead, China um, manages its currency, its exchange rate versus the dollar. Over the last 35 years, the, the currency has weakened versus the US dollar. That's a policy response by Chinese bureaucrats. And so that prevents their citizens becoming richer. And so we live in a world where there's there's not enough demand. We're missing the demand for making 1.4 billion people moving through from peasants to being kind of wealthy of $10,000 per capita GDP income. Um, and in return, so they're not, China's not buying goods and services from America. It's buying financial assets. And so we live in a world which is the worst of all worlds because it's one where you get asset price inflation and houses and and education become too too expensive for the ordinary folk. You get wage price disinflation and asset price inflation, which breeds breeds contempt for the system. Um, I'm taking a lot of notes because this is like a fascinating notion. So um, you get the asset price inflation, houses and education become too expensive. You get the wage price disinflation. Is it? And you mentioned like this is kind of like the worst of worlds. Are we like moving into like more of like just a speculative society? Like how do you how would you characterize this? Oh, I mean, we're not moving. We, we um, you know, the 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 industrious entrepreneurial spirit of the American uh, dream has been replaced um, by young kids. It's very Marxist. Uh, I'm the acid capitalist, not the acid Marxist. Uh, but Marxism is when you believe Marxism becomes very, very potent when when you go through one of these depressions where, where GDP is just not shared equally with everyone in, in the economy. And so young folk today are looking at their lives and saying, I'm just not going to be as wealthy as my my parents. I'm not going to be able to afford to live in an apartment in a major city that I would choose to live. It's beyond my means. Um, and, you know, and, and let's say you've, you know, you're, uh, you've got a, a, a good job, whatever that means, you know, and you've got some savings. What are you going to do? You, are you going to buy the S&P? I mean, the expect 10-year return on the S&P just now is, in real terms, zero at best. Uh, Jeremy Grantham would tell you it's negative something, but it was zero. Um, are you going to buy property? I mean, everyone's done the property thing. What's the the next ten year return? Nah, don't know. Um, and that's why you you know that's why you had the 
the the, uh, the hype and the mania for for crypto. And I'm making a distinction between crypto and Bitcoin, you know, and all those kind of scuzzy schemes and stuff. And it was breeding on the desire for the young folk. Uh, they've got to get rich quick because life is just too damn expensive otherwise. And it leaves them it leaves them exposed to these unexpected economic reversals. Um, so that, you know, um, that's not good. Um, the How we get around that, I don't know. Uh, but I'll tell you how we get around it. So, okay, let's let's say something positive. I, um, it's, let me be contentious. Um, I think the... Uh, the Biden administration, the, the the Great Inflation Reduction Act, is actually smart. Um, you, I, I believe that. So this can go two ways. I think the root cause of the problem is that the the U.S. runs an open capital account that is willing to allow sovereign nations to accumulate trillions of dollars of risk-free American securities. And I think that has made money dumb and turned the Society of America into a speculative rather than an entrepreneurial society. Okay, So you could choose to close the capital account. And what that would mean is you would put a surcharge on, say, China comes in and it wants to buy a billion dollars of treasuries. And you say, I'm going to charge you 15%. Okay, You could do that. If you do that, you would have a you'd have a very profound economic recession. Asset prices would collapse. Um, and so that no one is rushing to do that, okay? Um, the other thing you could do is you could say, hey, these guys are going to buy our risk-free securities. We just have to, so we can issue lots of, of US treasuries. There's no limit on what America can, I mean, there is a limit, but it's far, far away in a universe far away. It's like the George Lucas narrative to Star Wars. In a, in a universe far, far away, uh, the US government has you know debt issuance problems. It's certainly not today. So the US should be seizing the initiative and running smarter deficits. And so the Inflation Reduction Act, I think, is a sign of a smart deficit in that you subsidize private sector agents to build manufacturing, to invest in America. And, and the key word there is investment. The more you get the private sector making investments, the more you have a chance of productivity rebounding and becoming the factor which dominates economic growth and not debt. Okay, so we need more of that. I mean, I I wish they would eliminate the payroll tax. Um, there, you know, there are many kind of, but I, I wish we could we could change opinion in America and and recognize that today fiscal conservatism is a suicide pact. Being fiscally rectitude, what do you call fiscal rectitudinous, is a license to to you know just kill the population, to, to kill the spirit of the, the population. So you you either you close the capital account or you just accept you're going to run big government deficits, which are largely going to be eliminating taxes on employment, and they're going to be subsidizing investment in America. Um, and you're going to run uh, very low interest rates to sustain, um, you know, the policy. That's that's what I would do if I was a policymaker. You know, there's one thing to come on and, if you will, bitch talk about you know the authorities um, and talk about cataclysms. And there's another thing to try and constructively develop um, a dialogue that says we can do this better. You know, we can change this for the better. Uh, my great dissatisfaction is that the recession that I see is going to be of a similar magnitude to 2008, 2009. But at mm -hmm. the end, it's not going to resolve anything. You know, we're, we're still going to be left with the same broken model. Yeah. Can I ask a follow on to that? Because if you, if you perceive the recession being of a similar magnitude to 2008, 2009, and I, like, look, I'm not the expert. Um, you, you certainly are are the expert here. 2008, 2009. I, I blame like, I mean, I guess my the way I would blame it would be like the banking sector in that instance. Like, who would be? I mean, maybe it was the folly of 
of the banking sector, the banks, who would be where, where would this one come from? Would this come from like the policymakers decisions? Where does this kind of manifest itself? And you can correct me if I'm totally off. It, it's always the banking sector. Uh, I mean, it's it's not that they're malevolent. It's just that they are the principal intermediaries of credit. You know, they bring debtors and creditors, people with money, people without money, and they meet through, you know, the banking and the financial sector. Yeah. And so it's always the bank's fault. Uh, um, this time around, so the last time around, they, uh, they made a miscalculation. You know, they, like I said, they created riskless securities from mortgages. Um, on the premise that nationwide house prices don't decline, and that was a mistake. Yeah, and they went, they pretty much went bankrupt on that mistake. They bet the house on houses. And um, this time around, I would say um, it is government interference with the banking sector. I think I think the government has been a malevolent agent with regard to the banking sector. So I believe that the federal Let's take belief out of the, the equation and let's talk factually. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates in 12 months at a magnitude and velocity that they have never done in the history of the Federal Reserve. Okay, um, And there's a reason why they, they're always cautious in raising interest rates because it destabilizes the banks. You know, it takes you 18 months for a bank to reset um, the 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 rates that it charges for mortgages and for loans to industrial companies et al. Okay. And so you need time. If the banks were just to follow the Federal Reserve, they would go bankrupt. You know, their profits would go to zero, they'd lose money. Yeah. Um, and so the Federal Reserve respects that until actually the problem was that the Fed felt embarrassed. You know, JJ Powell was on um, primetime TV in, in 2020 saying, You know, what was he saying? He was saying, hey, folks, you know, we got your back. We're printing money, which, which was a fib. I don't know why he said it, but he said it. And then suddenly we had, we had price inflation. And so, you know, the politicians were on his back and the institution was, the credibility of the institution was under attack. And so they had, they had to respond really very quickly to, to save its reputation. But in saving its reputation, could it be that in attempting to salvage the Federal Reserve's reputation, um, they had to sacrifice the banking sector, and with the banking sector, they had to accept the most hideous economic decline that we're going to witness over the next 18 months? That's a question. I don't have the answer to that. Yeah, that's the question. Um, this is more of a curiosity, too, because you you mentioned um, Fed Chair Jerome Powell's uh, remarks on, on television around um money printing. And I believe in our last conversation, you you called him out. That was a lie because um, the Federal Reserve itself cannot go and print money. Um, you also told me at the time that only five people in the world like actually understood that he was not being forthright. I guess there are five people that understand how this works. Who are those, who are those five people? Now, Julie, you, you know I love you. But I know, but <laughs> I'm not going to do. So let me let me say that. I mean, I um, I speak in allegory and metaphorically, um, but in in complete with complete transparency, I have attempted to count with one hand and with five fingers the number of people that I respect. I may read a lot, and mm -hmm. um, and and the people that they they go, you know, I read it and I go, wow. You know, they, well, that's why guys, I want to know. I want to know who they are. I know, but I just, I, I feel that I have to respect their anonymity. Okay. I, I can me, guess one of them because I think one of them has been on the show. I, I'm sure. Okay. Uh, I, uh, can I, well, maybe we can cut it out if I'm, if I'm wrong. Go for it. Go for Is it. Jeff Snyder one of them? Yeah. No, I think I've, um, I, I did a show on my podcast uh, with, with, I call Jeff Jesus. I mean, he kind of looks like Jesus. Kind of, yeah. um, I mean, he he's metamorphosized. If you if, if he's like me, I mean, like, what is it with the the, the people long who, hair guys? The people who get it, you know. I mean, you know, I've got my 
I've got my tank. <laughs> uh, I get I get it if you want to keep them. And I was just kind of curious. I'm like, gosh, like I want to know who they are so I can invite them on the show. But <laughs> well, I, I'll I'll give you some tips of of offline. But but no, Je- Jeff. Um, Jeff has an unorthodox background, which I think is to his credit gives him legitimacy. Um, and and Jeff has spent more time and consideration thinking about the euro dollar system, which is bigger than the Federal Reserve system. Yeah, and 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 all credit to him. And Jeff is someone that uh, joins me in the shower every morning. I, I take my my iPhone, I put it into a plastic bag, and and I listen to Jeff talk about <laughs> the economy. That's amazing. Yeah, Euro Dollar University. I episode sixty seven for the folks who haven't checked that one out, and obviously he has a great podcast as do you. Okay, then to that point. Okay, so you like to okay part of your process. You put the phone in the bag in the shower. Listen, I, I like the way you can get more content. I just put the AirPods in and hope I don't mess it up with the water. So far, so good. Um, I want to hear about the content consumption for you because also last time we talked, you were sharing with me like you had this investment process of like playing music, looking at charts. Can we kind of go into your world of like how you consume content or come up with ideas? Can we hear more on that? And like, what kind of music do you listen to when you're doing that? Oh God! Um, well, you know, my hedge fund was called Eclectica, and my music is eclectic. Um, and so, my my take on that is is that we're constantly REM processing. You know, we're most aware of it because we're sleeping, but I, it's happening twenty four seven. And I find that music or reading, just reading anything, and um, There'll, there'll be sections where you hear something and it and suddenly you've solved the riddle. So so music is very, very important in solving the riddle. Presently, I'm loving PJ Harvey, um, who is like this English rock lady. Um, amazing. Um, I'm also loving this Irish band, The Fontaines. And I, I, I posted something on Twitter yesterday, which um, they did a festival and a kid has a, he's got a big sign and it says, I can play guitar. And 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 the you know, it's a it's a it's a fairy tale. The kid gets on stage, okay, and there's fifty thousand people, okay? And but no one knows, you know, can the kid play? Okay. And he gets strapped up and it's one, two, three, and the kid is dope. He's insane. So it's it I really encourage you dc fontaines they were playing at the reading festival you know um crowd member comes on stage and our life is so gray and when i look to the future i see in the short term unpleasant things and so it's nice to reflect on you know like that that good things do happen can happen will happen in our life so that's music um in terms of uh process or whatever um twitter Wow, who knew? Um, and we've got to encourage, sadly, um, the younger folk, they're not reaching for it. Um, Elon's got to sort that out. I'm sure he will. But um, I create lists. So there's just so many, like my five people are out there on, on yeah, and they're on Twitter and they, they write occasionally, whatever. Um, and so I used to begin my day reading the Financial Times, the digital section. Um, that was the first thing I would do. And then I thought, what am I doing? You know, the first thing I do is I, I got these lists. They're anonymous. No one, I, I can't really follow anyone because you get so many imposters mm-hmm. and all that. Um, I get my private list and each morning I wake up and some of the brightest people on the planet have written to me and they've, they've shared wisdom, written to me and to everyone else on the, on, on, on Twitter and, and shared wisdom. And I, and, that it's very thoughtful. And then I look at charts. So having an idea, um, this, the, the immediate thing is I've got to look at the chart representation. Ideas need the legitimacy of trend. And so when I get an amazing idea and I can find trend, I'm like, hallelujah, God is great. If he's, I mean, if there is such a construct, but, you know, uh, he's great. She's great, you know. Yeah. I love that. Um, gosh, I wish you guys were on Twitter when I was first getting on Twitter back in, what was it, 2010? Um, but it just feels like in more recent years, so many incredibly smart folks um, 
hedge fund managers and, and, and the alike as well, who are also um, on Twitter sharing their ideas. It's just been awesome. And I love following you, Hugh. Um, I've enjoyed having you on. I always enjoy having you on. You are such a delight to interview. So I want to give you a few minutes if you want to share some parting thoughts, things that we didn't bring up in this conversation. Let folks know um, where they can find more of your work, listen to your show, watch your show, follow you on social media. Please take a few moments to do so. Well, Julia, that's very, very kind. So uh, Twitter would be the main platform, um, Hendry underscore Hugh. Um, I'm doing a podcast. Um, that's the Asset, Asset Capitalist Show. It's on YouTube and all the audio platforms. Um, I've, I have Patreon. Patreon, you know, my, my thing is if I can't make a million bucks doing something, I've got to, I've got to do something else. Like, you know, my mind is precious um, and, and my lifestyle is, is expensive. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so it is, um, but you know, um, there's there are tears in that system and I sit down with folk and they get 40 minutes just like one-on-one -on -one and, and mentoring and the like so there's that I'm doing a conference you should come to that you're invited I, know, I saw that it looks so fun yeah. August 24th hey listen I, I, I'll find you a room um, at, at one of the houses uh, August 21 uh, in St. Bart's and I've got some some of the five might be there. I was, that's what I saw on the program that you mentioned yeah. the five who know. So I was thinking maybe we'd yeah. find out. Who Some, they are. Yeah. At least one of them. Uh, I don't, you know, just, I'm, I'm waiting to officially announce it. Um, but you beautiful houses, beautiful, beautiful Island, beautiful minds. Uh, it's going to be fun. Yeah, indeed. Well, you are so kind and generous. I appreciate you so much coming on the show. As always, Hugh Hendry, CIO of Acid Capitalism and also host of the incredible podcast, The Acid Capitalist. Thank you so much for coming on. Great to see you as always, Hugh. Oh, absolute delight. Thank you, Julia.